You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. So we always have to keep in mind that we want to do something for our patients and that to our patients. And there's a lot of drive to do things to people for a lot of different reasons. I like Maine because of the values that people have. On the East Coast, especially in Maine, the weather determines your values because as fishermen know, if you're in trouble, it doesn't make any difference if you like somebody or not, you go help them. The rules are based upon nature. Normally you can surround yourself with yourself and not have to challenge yourself in this way. Chocolate is definitely one of those ingredients that you have to learn from rather than learn to master. I have learned a lot from working with it about pretty much everything. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 74, Heartfelt, airing for the first time on February 10th, 2013. This week is a very important week in my life. This is the week that my daughter turns 12. It's interesting, my Sophie calls Valentine's Day Sophie's birthday, because that's exactly what it is in her mind. And it's appropriate. She's my third child. She is the child of my heart. She was the unexpected blessing uh, behind her other brother and her sister. And she served to remind me that you can be a doctor and live in your head. You can spend as much time as you want focusing on the thoughts and the ideas. But there's always going to be a part of you that's connected back to this very loving energy um, that's around us in the world. So happy birthday to my daughter, Sophie. And I'm very privileged to have on the show with us today other people who have heartfelt ways of living in the world and bringing their message to people just as I am. Our guests today include cardiologist Dr. Lowell Gerber, Steve and Kate Schaefer of Black Dinah Chocolatiers on Isla Ho, and Francis Howell of Hiking to Build Hope. Dr. Lowell Gerber is a cardiologist that spent many years rooting around in the arteries of people's hearts, trying to fix problems that had started years before. Over time, he came to understand that the type of medicine he was practicing was too far downstream. He wanted to go upstream and help people's hearts to be healthy from earlier on. Steve and Kate Schaefer of Black Dinah Chocolatiers are offering their own version of living in a heartfelt manner in their chocolatier studio at Idaho. As we've come to understand recently from the medical research, dark chocolate is actually good for us, as is the love that's put into creating a product that people enjoy. We know that you'll enjoy their interview. And Francis Howell of Hiking to Build Hope is one of the most enthusiastic proponents of hiking we have ever run across. 
He reminds us that it's important to live our lives with passion. Get out there, connect with nature, and really do what brings your heart joy. So from my heart to yours, happy Valentine's Day. I'm sending lots of love in your direction, and I hope that you are able to bring love into your own life and send it back out again. Thank you for joining us today and hearing our interviews with Dr. Lowell Gerber, Steve and Kate Schaefer, and Francis Howell. As you might imagine, given that I'm a radio show host, I really enjoy spending time talking to people about their health. Many of the things that I speak with my patients about or talk about on the air are things that I've learned in my own life and not necessarily through my training as a doctor. Recently, we've started a series at The Body Architect of information that combines the best of all worlds. And our next topic is on February 27th, and it will be about revving up your metabolism. For more information on the talk that we're giving on February 27th at The Body Architect in Portland, or to sign up, please call 207-774-2196. We look forward to seeing you there. Valentine's Day, obviously we think about hearts, and we're thinking more about hearts as they relate to love, but we also think about hearts as they relate to our blood and physiology. And of course, I think about it this way because I'm a doctor, so I've invited one of my fellow doctors, Dr. Lowell Gerber, a cardiologist who practices in Freeport, to come in and talk to us about this wonderful organ that helps us pump blood throughout our bodies and really keeps us, keeps us alive. Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you for such a nice introduction, um, because I too feel that the heart is the source of love and relationship in life. However, what we were just talking about earlier in uh, medical school and the medical profession, um, I sometimes have arguments with my colleagues that to say that the heart only exists to hold the two lungs together, or the heart only exists to provide a source of blood supply to the brain or the heart only exists to circulate blood to the gastrointestinal tract or the ovaries or uterus or whatever their organ of interest is. And uh, so I'm very pleased to be part of a discussion where we can talk more about the holistic effects of the heart and what it represents. You and I spoke on the phone um, yesterday, and it was interesting to me because you were an interventional cardiologist for... 30 years. 30 years. And I think you described um, an early sense that really the body was just a box around the heart when you were, you know, you this is the heart, this is your focus, you're going to go in there, you're going to do what you need to to the heart, and the body just becomes this box. Well, and actually, it's when I step back and have this out-of-body experience and look back on what I was doing, um, so actually the body was lying on a table. And... I had my means and mechanisms for getting into the body, but the heart actually was located in a box suspended over the body. So when you're cath lab, for many of the newer physicians, I think it's unfortunate, but they take this as a video game. Um, So truly for 30 years, um, I was focused on a very small portion. In fact, when I was putting in a, a stent in a coronary artery, I was interested in about a segment of the artery that was maybe one to two centimeters long and maybe three millimeters in diameter. 
and beyond that, it was somebody else's territory. Um, now, I had an interest in cardiac rehabilitation, and I have a master's degree in exercise physiology, and I never gave that up. But as I went into medical school, I became like all the other doctors and basically put aside everything that I'd been learned in the science of anatomy, physiology, pathology, biochemistry, and began to follow the guideline-based medicine that we're all now accustomed to. Well, I want to step back and um, explain for people who have never been in a cardiac cath lab, and maybe people who have been but don't really realize what you're saying, that when you're, and I was part of this when I was a medical resident, a medical student, you go in there, the person's on the table, there's stuff that's happening to the person, but what you're looking up at is basically a, a screen, a television screen. So it really does feel like you're kind of monkeying your fingers around in a very highly skilled way to get an achieved result up on a screen. Exactly. That must be, that must have been a very kind of, well, let's just say disembodied experience. Well, and that's why I call it um, reflecting back on my 30 years in the cath lab as an out-of-body experience because we got very accustomed to um, knowing a, a patient by the disease that they had and our exposure to the patient very often, uh, many of the physicians that I know really didn't examine a patient very much. The interventionalist, when they met the patient, there was a small opening in the gown um, over the groin area and now over the wrist. And for many of them, that was really the introduction. We try to avoid that now and get to know our patients better, but still, um, it is a very impersonal way of taking care of patients. This is the, the surgical approach. Um, there are many people who have bonded with their surgeons or with their obstetricians. Um, I don't know as many that bonded with their interventional cardiologists because typically the relationship is quite short. Um, what used to be an experience where somebody would have a heart attack and come in, they'd be in the hospital for two weeks. So now they come into the emergency room. Um, they're met with a very skilled team who makes their assessments very quickly. Um, there's a stopwatch that starts ticking. There's a time frame to get them into the cardiac catheterization laboratory to get the procedure completed. And it used to be called the door to balloon time, and now it's the call to balloon time. So from the time the patient calls for help, the stopwatch starts. And the balloon is? The balloon is the device that's put into the artery to deploy, usually to deploy a little piece of metal that's called a stent. So when the artery is blocked, we open it with a balloon and then put a stent in there to keep it open. So that's all on the clock right now. And, and now there are case managers who are meeting with the family when the patients come into the emergency room with their heart attack to begin the discharge planning. So a patient may come in with a heart attack and be out of the hospital within 24 hours. So the whole time that we had to bond with the patient, develop a physician-patient relationship, to take advantage of that teachable moment when the patient and their family are suffering a medical crisis and they're more open to listen to things, um, that's really been diminished. And so for many patients, they're in and out so quickly, for many of them, it quite literally is difficult for them to believe that anything bad really happened because it goes so quick, they're sedated, they're treated very humanely. But the teachable moment is gone and so one of my interests is to make lifestyle changes for people. 
And usually that teachable moment is when a patient and their family are very much open to a lifestyle change. But that's gone for many. Well, after 30 years being an interventional cardiologist, and for people who are listening, an interventional cardiologist, just define that a little bit. So there are different types of cardiologists. So back when I started training, there was no such thing as an interventional cardiologist. There were clinical cardiologists who were physicians that often worked in their office. And there were invasive cardiologists who often did most of their work or some of their work in the hospital doing those procedures where you actually do something to the patient to make a diagnosis. And that something was usually putting a, a small tube into a, an artery, a peripheral artery, usually in the groin, and then advancing a tube up into the arteries of the heart and taking a picture of the heart and often putting a tube into the chambers of the heart measuring the pressures, and that was called catheterization. So the invasive cardiologist did cardiac catheterization, measuring the pressures of the structure function of the heart, and coronary angiography. So it was cardiac catheterization and coronary angiography. And then in the late 70s and early 80s, for the first time, we were able to actually do something to the artery besides take a picture of it or measure its function. And the first things that were done were using a balloon to stretch the artery open. And at the same time, we learned how to stretch the arteries and the legs open, the arteries and the kidneys, the arteries actually leading to the brain were done very early. But the problem was they kept coming back. And so then in the mid-80s and early 90s, we introduced putting little pieces of metal around that balloon called a stent. And that's probably one of the most frequent procedures done in the United States today is opening an artery. So the cardiac catheterization, measuring the pressures and function, and the coronary angiography taking the pictures are a preliminary step. And then the next step is actually to do something to the patient to change them. And that's putting the balloon and stent in. Now that's gone well beyond that now because now we put uh, artificial valves in without surgery. We put stents in the carotid arteries that, to hopefully to prevent stroke, into the renal arteries to prevent kidney failure, and the arteries of the legs to relieve symptoms. So it has really expanded and now we do this in not only in neonates to avoid recurrent congenital heart surgeries, but there are procedures done um, in, in utero in the fetus, they can do So you're do talking things. neonates, babies. We're talking about babies before they're babies born. Babies before they're born. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of interventions in cardiology and radiology, I've got to give a lot of um, recognition and respect to the interventional radiologists who've helped this field develop. It's not just cardiology, not just radiology. It's been neurologists. It's been nephrologists. It's really been a blossoming of physicians who want to do something for their patients more proactive than surgery. Well, this is a good place to, for me to jump in because what you've just spent this time describing, and I think it's really helpful because we hear these terms and people who are listening, they, they hear these terms, but we don't always get them defined as clearly as that. But it sounds very technical. I mean, you've, you've, it's, it sounds like a very technical field where you have to be very skilled with your, um, well, you have to be intelligent, you have to be able to use your fingers um, in a way to manipulate the things that need to go into very small spaces. Um, and it's, what we've been able to offer patients is truly amazing. And, and we've been able, been able to prolong lives, we've been able to do really wonderful things with the technology. But after 30 years of doing this technical stuff, you've really shifted the way that you now practice medicine. And you're in the process of shifting this. So Correct. 
Well, one of my interests became what's called now multivascular disease. And that's why I tried to bring in all those other disciplines. Because the same disease process not only affects the coronary arteries, but affects arteries throughout the body. So we reach a point as people age and develop other medical problems that promote this atherosclerosis, do we get to a point where we're going to put stents in two carotid arteries, two renal arteries, three coronary arteries, and arteries in the legs? Where does it end? And maybe we're approaching this a little too late. Um, Now, my father was a dentist, and he got interested in dental prevention very early and was at odds with the Chicago Dental Society because prevention really wasn't something people were really interested in then. And so maybe some of that's rubbed off on me as I've maintained my interest in interventions, but also in cardiac rehab and prevention. And a lot of what we've heard about prevention has been pretty much held as blasphemy, that it doesn't work, it can't work, um, and that anybody who tries to reverse these things is a quack. And I believe that. And I had a fair number of patients who were getting chelation therapy in Florida, where I practiced for a long time, that had failed chelation therapy. The disease progressed despite it. And so, of course, we just said this is just more proof that, you know, you can't change it. And what we do as interventional cardiologists, putting in a balloon and a stent, is the answer. And then as we got better at putting in balloons and stents, the technology got better, the devices got safer. Um, We, I'm speaking generically amongst interventional cardiologists and radiologists, started to feel, well, if most heart attacks occur with a plaque that's less than a 50% blockage, I don't think most people know that. Most people think that if you have a severe blockage, that's when you have a heart attack. Well, if it happens acutely, if a plaque ruptures and it blocks an artery, then people have a heart attack. But most of those heart attacks occur from plaques that are less than 50% obstruction of the lumen. In fact, most of them are 30%. And we call this now a vulnerable plaque because we know more about the pathophysiology. So many of my colleagues felt that, well, if stenting a 70 to 90% stenosis is a good thing, then maybe we should be stenting the 30 to 50% stenoses to prevent them from ever having a heart attack. And that was called plaque sealing, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, not C-E-I. We hear a lot now about sealings, fiscal capital debt sealings, but we're talking about a different type of sealing. And so physicians thinking that they were doing a good thing for their patients by sealing these vulnerable plaques in vulnerable patients, we began to create a new disease category of stent thrombosis, stent dissections. So we always have to keep in mind that we want to do something for our patients and that to our patients. And there's a lot of drive to do things to people for a lot of different reasons. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. A friend recently had a heart attack snorkeling in the Bahamas. When it came time to have surgery, he was faced with a decision about where to have it. He sought out the advice of friends who love him, 
He contemplated the sacrifices of getting him back home to have surgery near family. He was steered passionately in the direction of those who love what they do, and in the end, it all came together beautifully. If only it were so with poor Sybil, her death scripted for TV's Downington Abbey was a tragic display of the love of knowledge valued over real love. To get this, we need to understand Greek. Not Greek tragedies, but the words for the values of Greek love. The words are philia, agape, storge, thelema, and eros. Love is not just one, but paste them all together, and you get a deeper understanding of this word we call love. Make sure love is at the heart of all your decisions. It'll help you get over the heartache and sticker shock of buying a dozen roses. To learn more, email us at info at shepherdfinancialmain.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Well, and you're right that this is... And again, it's very important. If you have a patient who comes in with a lesion, you certainly don't want them to have a heart attack or a stroke. Um, so it's not that this doesn't have its place. But you've been working more upstream than that, literally and figuratively, I think. Yep. Um, you've been working more with um, metabolic disease, with obesity, with dietary changes. And you've been trying to get people to a place where um, you're trying to impact things before they get to the place where they need to have a stent. So talk to me yeah. about that. So um, this is where I start the conversation with my patients. And I start out my life doing exercise physiology of a master's degree, was working on a PhD in that. And in medical school, I was doing research on endothelium, injecting very minute amounts of what's called endotoxin. It's an inflammatory component of bacterial cell walls and studying the interaction between the blood and the vessel wall. And I've been looking at that for 30 years. As I got into interventional cardiology, my life was taking care of the other end of that experimental model, and that is the effects of chronic disease on the endothelium, the plaque buildup. So I've been trying to put that together, but it's always been at a distance. It's been a research interest. It's been a clinical interest. And then what happens that at age 50, I think I mentioned this to you, at age 50, um, I realized that I had been doing triathlons. I've been cross-country team, been an athlete all my life. I was doing triathlons. And then at age 50, I started to slow down. I started to gain weight. Had nothing, done nothing different about my exercise regimen or my diet, but I was slowing down and gaining weight. And my running partner, who was 73 years old, was starting to pull ahead of me. And we would run one day, swim one day, cycle one day, 
do resistance training one day, then often we would go and look at the course and do the, the course because you had to, to be competitive, you really had to know the course. You had to know where to leave your bike, where to leave your shoes, where to leave your pick up your goggles. And so we would do that one day and just do a light workout. Then we would compete and take a day off. And we did that almost every, in Florida, you could do a triathlon more than once a week if you really wanted to. And so my own doctor told me that um, I should give up the Mediterranean diet that I was on because there was too much fat in it. I should go on a very low-fat diet, get the fat out of my diet. And I should start doing what I told my patients. They should work out three to five days a week at 30 to 45 minutes of moderate intensity because I was eating too much fat and I was overtraining. And so I did that. And I gained more weight. My cholesterol wasn't bad, but it never got where we wanted it. And he wanted to start me on statins. My blood pressure was nearly never really high at rest, but on the treadmill test, it went up a little bit too much. And so he wanted me to take an ACE inhibitor. Um, both my mom and dad had coronary artery disease, but both at very late age, but he wanted to be you know, preventive and started me on aspirin. And so now I'm on aspirin, beta blocker, statin, an ACE inhibitor, and I'm following the advice I give my patients and I'm gaining weight, my cholesterol is not getting the target, my blood sugar, my fasting blood sugar is still at the, it was normal, but it was the upper ranges in the 90s. And um, he's telling me that, you know, he, I realize, Dr. Gerber, that you're very, very busy. You make rounds, you do all these procedures, but you need to start taking care of yourself. You need to follow this diet and do this exercise. And then I just kind of got very flushed and had this, I call it an aha moment, where I said to myself, oh, my God, he's accusing me of not doing, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. In fact, I'm doing less than what I used to be doing, and I'm gaining weight. My blood pressure is going up. My blood sugar and my cholesterol is not a target. I said, "Oh my God, my patients weren't lying to me. I was so arrogant that I would get up at three o'clock in the morning with a patient having a heart attack, put a balloon in the stent in the widowmaker. That's the proximal part of the artery where if it closes off completely, they die. We'd get him into the lab, open it up. I'd pat him on the back, saved your life. Pat myself on the back, I saved his life." And I'd give them this regimen to follow and ask them to see me back in six weeks to three months. And if they weren't a target, if they hadn't made the goals I set for them, I would have them see my dietitian about a very low-fat diet. I'd have them go to the gym that I selected because they were a very medically-oriented type of gym and have them follow the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines that were recommended. And I'd have them come back. And they still hadn't made their progress. And again, I was so arrogant, I would say, you better you know, really get with the guidelines here because you're going to have another heart attack and nobody may be able to get to you quick enough to save your life. And they'd say, Doc, look at me. Here's my journal. I go to your dietitian. Here's my exercise log. I go to your gym. I breathe air. I drink water. I eat granola. And look at me. And then when I did it to myself, when I had gained 50 pounds, had metabolic syndrome with pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, my cholesterol was a little bit too high, and then found I had a plaque in my carotid. I said, oh my God, I am doing it to myself following the guidelines. And that's when my life shifted 180 degrees. I said, you know what? Something's wrong here. And I had to find out what was wrong.
So what are you doing differently now? What do you now offer your patients and now practice yourself? So what I had to do for myself is find out why wasn't I following those guidelines? They're supposed to work for everybody. And what I did is just had to go back in my memory to where was I when I was working on my PhD in exercise physiology, when I was studying body composition and nutrition? And so I went back and looked at what we knew 40, 50 years ago and looked at where we are now and then looked for a type of physician that had a more of a holistic approach to treating a human body than the guidelines. In other words, you know, what is it about Lowell Gerber that his diet isn't the same for him as other people that exercise or what are the metabolic hormonal factors are there? And so I found physician that would do that, that would have a very personalized approach to find out from detailed history, physical, family history, biochemistry, hormonal patterns, you know, where am I today? And as most of us in medicine have had to learn some of us the hard way is that patients have wants and needs, and I knew where I wanted to go, but he knew where I needed to go, and they weren't the same because he was thinking about individualized, personalized care. And I wanted to follow the guidelines because that's what I had been taught. And so it took me a little bit while to wipe my slate clean and follow what they had told me to do. And that as a former researcher, physician, PhD candidate, to go back and look at it for myself and make up my own mind. You and I could spend hours and hours on so many different aspects of this because I know that this is something you've dedicated your entire life to. It's so hard to encapsulate this down into... Um an hour-long show. Um, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing in the community? And where can they hear you speak and connect with you personally? What's the best way to reach you? Okay. Well, at, at this moment, I'm actually in a met metamorphosis professionally. Um, I've done cardiology now for 30 years, finished my cardiology training. I hate to see this, in 1980. And um, transitioning more to a full-time practice of a combination of preventive aging, um, preventive cardiology, and um, weight management. And I've been actually questioned by some of my patients about why would a physician who's interested in preventive aging include children and families? My, I'm developing a medical retreat for my fantasy would be to have baby boomers with their parents and their kids. Because when I see a middle-aged woman who comes in who wants to lose weight and she's got kids at home and, grand, and her own parents to care for and she's working because of the economy, she doesn't have time to fix six different meals. So part of the challenge is to figure out the dynamics of the family as well as the dynamics. So it has to be a lifestyle that they'll stick with. So it may not be perfect, but it's better than what they're doing. So I see children who are, and you probably see them as well, they're infants, they're most recently, I took care of a nine-year-old um, who had obesity, hypertension, prediabetes, and hyperlipidemia. And the answer by his pediatrician was to uh, make him work out more and put him on antihypertensives, glucose-lowering, and statin drugs. But when people come to see you, you don't do that for them. And I know your practice is in transition, but how do people contact yeah. you? So I have a web page. And um, you can go to www.leanerme, 
L-E-A-N-E-R-Me.com, or the new uh, complete practice. So Leaner Me is the weight management aspect. Um, I have an age management practice, which was um, live younger, love longer, be strong. And those two are being combined into a single program called Younger Leaner Me. And so all those will lead um, to me. Um, I didn't bring a business card today because those are being, I've got consultants, my goodness, telling me, you know, how to design the card, how many letters to have, you know, um, and that's the part of this I don't like. But in order to get the word out as you're doing for me now, people need to know how to get a hold of me. So www.leanerme.com is probably the easiest. Um, And I hope to have the new practice up and running full probably by Valentine's Day. That's kind of my target right now. Perfect. Well, as I said, there's just so, you're just a wealth of information. And I, I know that there are many, many more shows that we could do on various aspects of what you're doing. And I congratulate you for spending all this time and really trying to understand things so that you can create personalized um, plans for people, preventive cardiology plans um, and other um, weight loss plans. So I appreciate your coming in and speaking with us today. We've been talking with Dr. Lowell Gerber, whose cardiology practice is in Freeport. Thank you so much for helping me get the message out for particularly for women on Valentine's Day. And I will be giving this talk on preventive cardiology in Freeport and Portland. And it'll be in the newspaper and on my website. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, the Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774-2196 and get started with the Body Architect today. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. One of our good friends, Beth Schisler, the co-founder of Seabags, when she heard that we were putting together our Valentine's Day show, said, you know, I have this group of people that you definitely need to meet, or these two individuals you definitely need to meet. And this would be Steve and Kate Schaefer, who are the co-founders of Black Dinah Chocolatiers, all the way up uh, the coast, or off the coast, at the Isle of Ho. Isle of Ho. That's right. Which I thought was kind of exciting, and the fact that you agreed to come down off the island and talk to us about what you're doing at Black Dinah Chocolatiers um, makes me really happy. It's a good way to start my day. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having us. And I know that actually you came up from New York City, so or New York. Yes. So you're not having to come down off the yeah. island today, but what's that like to live on an island? <laughs> well, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot of scheduling. Uh, this time of year, there's only two boats a day. Um, which is pretty good for a remote main island, um, but it's still, you really have to plan your life yeah. around the boat schedule. 
Yeah, the nickname of it is Lugaho because you're always lugging something on or something off. Hmm. How so long's the ferry ride out there? About 40 minutes. So how does that feel? Does that give you kind of a zen time frame in which to just kind of hang out? Or are you doing business stuff? Or What's that like? I've always wondered to actually live on an island and not just visit. It's a, I'd say it's a hurry up and rush. So, you know, you get used to having to rush to get ready either the night before preparing everything. So when you get up in the morning, you're ready to go the next, you know, that morning to catch the boat. And once you're on the boat, that's that moment of zen where there's nothing else you can do but sit. And do you bring this sort of sense of um, what sounds like just mindfulness and rolling with it and being kind of peaceful in the way that you approach your lives. Do you bring this into the work that you do with creating chocolate? Sure. Um, I mean, I I came out to the island as a cook for the inn out there. It was the keeper's house. Actually, it's going to reopen again this summer. But um, uh it is definitely, I won't say fly by the seat of your pants, but it's definitely work with what you have and the resources that you have. And that was a huge factor in creating our business model. Um, we wanted to make fine chocolate, um, but we really wanted to use our uh, local resources. And since chocolate is so not local, um, everything else we use really, we felt had to be. Um, so, you know, we took a look, we started right there in our front yard and started looking around at what we could use um, from the island from Maine um, to create a, a really high quality confection um, that would resonate not only with um, gourmet chocolate lovers but with Maine um, itself. So, so yeah, definitely. So what did you find when you were taking a look? I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you look in your front yard and find something that might go into a chocolate? Sure. So tell me about that. Um, so, I mean, Maine is very known for, for instance, Kate's butter. Um, we use butter in our truffles and, um, you know, local cream and milk. Uh, we use local herbs, fruits, and flowers. So apples right from the island, um, pumpkins from our neighbors across the water. Um, blueberries, of course, raspberries, strawberries. Well, you know, when we first moved out here, you know, Kate grew up in California, and um, so when she first moved out here, her thought was, uh, you know, what about the food? Because California has such great food, and it's, you know, abundant. And um, within, I think, the first couple of years, when she was working at the lighthouse having to source food, she found out that the food here was much better um, than what she was being able to find in California, and she was um, very surprised. Right. Well, it was it was more accessible, and and I really developed a lot of personal relationships with the farmers. That so, for instance, I was living on the island um, when I was a cook at the lighthouse. I was living on the island five days a week, so I would do all my farm runs on my way to the boat for my week out, and so I developed a lot of personal relationships with this very dynamic network of farmers and home gardeners. And when we decided to start our own business, it was. It was a natural sort of organic movement to use the resources that we had already developed with them. So um, it was it was fun. It was really fun. I think it, it like I think of it as a organic process. You know, we have it. We d built the business with an idea in mind, and then just let it develop with the. Um, reflection back from the community and so forth. So it's been a, a very interesting process. That is very interesting because if you 
not everybody lives in a place that they would consider a community. I mean, you can call something a community because you live there and there's other houses around you, but there isn't necessarily always the back and forth. Right. On an island, you kind of have the people who are on the island with you. Right. And even the people who are on the mainland, I mean, if it's a small town in Maine, there's only so many of them. You kind of have to learn to get along and to rely on one another. Right. What's that been like? Well, I think like one of the things that has been really interesting for us is as we've hired people from the community is targeting people that we go, okay, who has a skill set that we think will fit in here? And then offering them an opportunity that they wouldn't have had so that they may be doing something that they can, is what they can do, but it may not be tapping into a skill or um, something that they, an interest that they have. And I, I think that we've been able to offer up a different way of being out there and they've been able to actually fulfill a sort of like, oh, well, I'm good at this. I can do this. So it's been really fun to see that kind of um, interaction happening. Right. So one of the questions a lot of people ask us, I mean, there's 40 people that live on Idaho. And when you start a business, especially a growing business out there, people say, well, you know, what about what about the workforce? You know, where do you hire from? Do you hire from off-island? And we have not um, because... Uh, it's it's sort of amazing. We've found our perfect coworkers right there on Idaho. I mean, we couldn't have asked for better people to work with with the with more perfect skill sets. Right, and I guess you know, for me, the uh, what was the crux was of the beginning was we sat there and said we want to be here. So what are we going to do to be here? And we didn't sit there and come in with an idea. Well, we're going to move here and do this. We sat down and said, okay, what can we do here that is feasible and given the um, community and the materials that we have at, at hand. And so that's the thing of like, it was very organic um, in that whole process. Um, and on both ends, in the design of the business and also in the production of the chocolate and how, you know, creating things. Yeah, it's definitely a different way to create something is um, being in a place that you want to be right. and, uh, and taking bits and pieces from it and creating a model from your surroundings. And so often it's like, you know, the, the, like you look at, uh, look at how businesses are created. People sit there and say, oh, I want to move up to Maine and do this. And we came to Maine because we wanted to be in Maine. And then we said, what is it we're going to do here in order to survive? Because we are on a remote island, so you kind of have to sit down. And we spent a, a full winter working out the details of what we could do and what was possible in, in there. Um, you know, so we really thought about it. Yeah, so it makes perfect sense that we started making <laughs> yeah, chocolate, exactly. right? <laughs> It, it is a very different way of approaching things because I, I think people do often come in with sort of a top-down, I am this and I'm going to fit, I'm going to sort of put myself in this place and expect things to kind of morph around me. And what you're doing is saying, we want to be in this place and let's see what is already in existence and how can we create this collaborative um, group right. to actually create a product. And that and that's something that I find um really very touching because in Chinese medicine, when we, they talk about food having an essence, and they talk about specifically live foods, so they, they talk about different plants and growing different fruits and vegetables, and they have different essences. But you're creating something from food sources that are already, I mean, maybe those foods still have their essences, but you're actually contributing personal essences and the essence of the community and into the chocolate that you're making, which is a very loving process. Right. I think so. Yeah. And also chocolate itself. It's, um, 
an extremely magical <laughs> substance. I mean, I was never crazy about chocolate before we started it. I mean, I wasn't, you know, gaga about it, but um, as an ingredient, I was always fascinated by it and how it behaves. And um, it is, especially combining it with other things, including energy and all that stuff. Um, it's, it's magical. And that's one thing too, is um, when Kate was working at the lighthouse and she was having um, shoulder issues, I think it was, and she went to see somebody who did some body work. And they said, you need to stop putting stress into what you're doing. And so she you know, really took it to heart and started coming in saying, okay, I'm gonna put my love into this. This is what I love. And at the same time, she started working with chocolate, which is very frustrating because it doesn't behave like any other product. So she had to change her attitude towards it. And I think that was, it was an interaction. I mean, chocolate has, you know, it's, you can make it beautiful, it's also chemistry and it's food. And so it combined a number of things that touched on what Kate liked to do. And, was, and she, I think she said, I don't want to put the stress because I'm frustrated with this product. I'm going to learn to love it and work with it. Yeah. And so it, it totally changed how she did what she did. Chocolate is definitely one of those ingredients that you have to learn from rather than learn to master. And um, I, at least that's the way I approach it. I, maybe other chocolatiers do it differently, but... Um, but it's, I have learned a lot from working with it about um, pretty much everything. You know, I think it definitely relates to life and um, how we live our life on the island. So, like, uh, you know, Kate's been able to laugh at a lot of the mistakes she's made. She has on her um, uh, homepage, I think it is, for Facebook, um, a photo of the chocolate that she spilled onto the floor. And it was really beautiful because <laughs> the floor is kind of uh, orange and pink. And it, there's this chocolate... Uh, Jackson Pollock type design and she it looks it's great you know so it's sort of seeing the mess and being like well that is still kind of beautiful it's not what I wanted but right it ruined every project I was planning that day (laughs) we got a really good photograph out of it yeah Steve are you from Maine Um, I'm not I lived in uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania I moved to Maine graduated from UMO and then moved to California and then realized I really liked Maine um, I like the community, how small it is, and so forth. So I wanted to introduce Kate to it, and uh, we moved. She decided, yeah, I'll move back here. I'll try living here. And what is it about Maine that attracted the two of you? Why, why Maine? Why the Isle of Hope? When I lived in Maine previously, I really liked the island, so I was always attracted to the smallness of them in the community. And um, when I moved to California. I was kind of intimidated by California because it's always this, you know, magical big place and stuff like that. And um, I felt like I was living in Maine because I was kind of avoiding people. And so when I moved to California, I was like, okay, I was living in, you know, in different um, places and so forth. And I realized I really, it wasn't, it was there because I liked Maine because of the values that people have. And one of the things that I think about um, is how, like people came to, you know, America initially to design, to set up communities and, and, um, on the East Coast, especially in Maine, the weather determines your values because as fishermen would know, if you're in trouble, it doesn't make any difference if you like somebody or not, you go help them. And so it, you, the rules are based upon um, nature. And on the West Coast, it feels to me like people made a gold rush. They went over there for wealth and the whole system was set up on society. So the rules, when you base them on society, are changeable. You know, one minute it can be this rule, and the next minute it can be this. So it wasn't as stable. People weren't as um, community-oriented, even though living was easier. And I realized that I really liked this about Maine. I really liked the community. And one of the things that I really appreciate on the island is I've developed friendships with people that I would never have developed. And so the opportunity has been that, because we live so closely with people, that I feel so enriched by that. Where 
normally you can surround yourself with yourself and not have to um, challenge yourself in this way. So, can you tell he studied philosophy? <laughs> yes, yeah. I can tell that you're you're a very well-rounded individual. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. But. Um, why is it called Black Dinah? Uh, Black Dinah is the name of the mountain, which is actually really just a rock. Um, uh, right outside our back door. So um, on all the old maps of Idaho, uh, they have it on the old maps, but not um, on the new maps. Um, and it's it's a rock. It's, it takes about 10 minutes to hike up to the top of it, and uh, you get a great view of Penobscot Bay and the Camden Hills. And This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. And by Booth, accounting and business management services, payroll and bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmaine.com for more information. What are your favorite products that you, I mean, we've talked a lot about life and living and <laughs> coming back to the chocolate idea. What are some of the favorite, your favorite creations that we make? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I love our truffles and, and that's our, our biggest product. And, uh, and I mostly love them because of the process of making them. Um, I mean, they're fabulous to eat and all that but um, it's just it is so rewarding to start from scratch you know your cream your chocolate your butter and make the best ganache you could make and then coat it in the best chocolate you can find and make it look beautiful Um, so I love that process but as far as products go I think my favorite ones are the ones that have sort of sprung up um, from by accident or just by innovation because we're trying to figure out how to use, you know, the bits of caramel that we cut off um, uh, that would normally, you know, be composted. You know, there it's a, it's a great thing, you know, we hate to get rid of it. So Steve, you know, Steve and I will sit there, we'll be in the kitchen looking at it and Steve will stick a chocolate frog on a on a piece of caramel and be like hey we could do this this could be a, our frog on a log which is definitely one of our best-selling products now so yeah we do like you know that was one thing too is having to bring like because with our chocolates we would always take back what hasn't sold because they, they're fresh and they'll mold and so forth so we didn't want them in the stores beyond a certain date so we'd bring them back and so then we were like what are we going to do with these because we it was you know heartbreaking to have to compost them so we started making ice cream you know so it's always this thing of what do we do to reduce our, our waste stream you know yeah. and I have to say one of my favorite I mean not only for the taste is the varietal which is um, I like it because what it, it is is um, in uh, South America this is a Peruvian chocolate and what happened was they were um down there they were growing uh, cocaine because that was the only source of income that these communities had and what would ha- the war on drugs the government would come down and decimate the communities and so they started having to go into the rainforest creating you know new fields destroying the um, rainforest setting up again and then the government would find them and make them move so you were ruining the community you're ruining the rainforest so this organization came in and said okay we're going to offer them chocolate. We're going to teach them how to grow chocolate. We're going to buy it from them. We're going to make this high-quality chocolate, and we're going to sell it. And so the varietal is actually 
That's a truffle. It's a truffle, mm-hmm. and it comes from it's one source. Um, so you really get the flavor of the chocolate. It's our, it's our most requested truffle. And it's also supporting another community that is trying to, you know, make themselves um, viable. You know, so I feel like that is, you know, because I'm philosophy, huh. I don't have a great palate like Kate does, you know. So I think about the whole process of how we're setting up things and how, what is the stream from beginning to end. And so that's one of my favorite um, products. How do people find out about Black Dinah? chocolatiers, the chocolates that you're making out of? Sure. Um, Well, we've been very lucky to have had a lot of um, media coverage since 2007 when we started. So um, regionally, we've been covered in a lot of the magazines around here. We don't really do any paid advertising. Nationally, we've been in, you know, Martha Stewart and Gourmet and the Boston Globe. Um, But also, um, we do wholesale uh, to... Uh, certain outlets along the coast of Maine. Um, Our biggest part of our business is our website, so we do 75% of our business online, so we ship all over the world. However, we really wanted to make our product um, affordable and accessible to people in Maine, so um, we are pretty well covered from north to south along the coast of Maine, um, where people can find our chocolates in stores um, in their local communities. and take them home and then hopefully order them online. So www.blackdinachocolatiers.com or you can Google Black Dinah Chocolatiers or Black Dinah. You may get some odd things when you do just Black Dinah, (laughs) but (laughs) we'll show up pretty much near the top. Well, it has been a a great pleasure and a very sweet pleasure to spend time with um, you both. We've been talking with Steve and Kate Schaefer who are founders of Black Dinah Chocolatiers up on Isla Ho. Thank you for, again, bringing sweetness into the world and for bringing sweetness into my morning. Thank you. Thank this you. This has been great. Not too long ago, the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour was contacted by an individual whose Facebook page was called Hiking to Build Hope. We were fascinated, and we wanted this individual to come on our show and talk about hiking, but he happened to be out on the Appalachian Trail, of course, hiking. So when he contacted us again recently and said, I'm back in town and I'd like to talk about hiking and hope, we said, great, come on in. And we're so thrilled to have the chance to talk with Francis Howell of Hiking to Build Hope at long last. Thanks for coming in, Francis. Thank you for bringing me in. Hiking to Build Hope is really excited that you brought us in. Last time, we were trying to reach out to you when you... Answered our call through email. I was on the Appalachian Trail at that point, and I just really, you know, I want to start this with a positive impact on people, and this is what it's about. It's about healing, you know? Well, tell me about that. Why did you start hiking, and how does it bring healing into people's lives? It started as a dream. It just came to me. So our church was doing a campaign to raise $5 million. It's pretty big church and this just came to me so I wanted to do a walk through New Hampshire to try to raise funds but our church takes care of itself and I pray for it so but it became hiking to build hope and it's going there maybe someday we can do something I don't know so hiking to build hope started out as a dream I don't know what hope looks like I'm trying to find out so that you're going to share your message by using the technology and commuting with pe- communicating with people all over the world. Right. And I'm not bringing technology on trail, and I kind of want to speak to this for Outdoor Magazine. They wrote up an article. 
that three days in the outback can increase your brain power by 25% and it's real. So I'm going to try not to bring technology on the trail. I got a good team behind me. They're supportive. And that's what I need because you can't make it alone. So if people get in touch with you through Facebook, is that that's the best one. way? Yeah, yeah, you can message me. Okay. Put a post on the on the on the on the uh, site, or if you don't want to, if you want to keep your identity out, I don't blame you. Uh, just send an email, call. Those are two good ways. Okay, and I know that you are very good at getting back to people because <laughs> you and I have been communicating back and forth. So people who are interested in hearing more about hiking to build hope, they can be in touch with you. Right, um, and I built a PayPal account. We're going to try to push that forward. Okay. Um, that was recommended from <clears throat> again person who's very very connected to the Appalachian Trail community. Very good. Well we've been speaking with Francis Howell of Hiking to Build Hope and we so appreciate your being persistent and coming on the show and sharing your message which is a very important one that people should get out and connect with the environment, increase their brain power, connect with their communities and really wherever they're coming from they should do what they can to make other people's lives better and I think that you're one of those people Francis and we're very pleased that you came in to speak with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast show number 74 Heartfelt. Our guests have included cardiologist Dr. Lowell Gerber Steve and Kate Schaefer of Black Dinah Chocolatiers on Isla Ho, and Francis Howell of Hiking to Build Hope. For more information on our guests, visit drlisa.org. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-Lisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's shows, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R, Lisa, and read my take on wellness on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.org. For more information on my medical practice at The Body Architect, call 207-774-2196. And they can also give you information there on our February 27th Rev Up Your Metabolism talk. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. One of our sponsors, Apothecary by Design, has let us know that there is an upcoming event that they are encouraging you to go to. It sounds pretty great. It's called Women's Vitality, Looking and Feeling Your Best, with Dr. Messina Wright and Katie Donahue of RX Skin Therapy. This will be taking place on February 26, 2013, at 6.30 p.m. For more information on this event, visit the Apothecary by Design website, or their Facebook page. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping you've enjoyed our heartfelt show. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your day. May you have a bountiful life, and happy Valentine's Day. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog, of orthopedic specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Courtney Taberge. 
Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.